it's time for another governance update from VLGA Connect with Stephen Cooper, the Chief of Staff of the VLGA, joining me. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I, I must say, it's very good of you to give us your time on a public holiday in Melbourne, Victoria. <laughs> well, I think anyone uh, in Victoria is saying this is a public holiday that we've earned. Like, in fact, this particular public holiday, we don't normally say that, but we do this time. <laughs> Very true. And look, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's get into it from the governance world. But uh, bef before I do, uh, let's just reflect back on last week. We had Lucy Dalton from LGV on the program. I've got to say, she's got a lot of fans out there because it's it's hitting new heights in terms of our viewership. Well, I was thinking too, when you told me that, Chris, what's changed? Oh, the only thing that changed was having Lucy on uh, on this show. So that must be it. And of course, your Kill Bill 2 dissertation which might have grabbed some listenership too. <laughs> it's caused mirth to a small number of people, which is all I was hoping, Chris. <laughs> so let's start uh, with some serious issues. So we're going down to Tassie to start off today. A couple of stories out of Tasmania that are worth focusing on from a governance angle. Um, Steve, you might be aware that earlier in the year, the uh, I think they call it the PESRAC report. It's the Premier's Economic and Sustainability Action Committee or something to that effect. Um, released a report that made recommendations about a, a number of things, but one of them was local government reform. It actually recommended that the parliament in Tasmania should sponsor a process to drive structural reform to the local government sector, which is not so much code for amalgamations. Um, this week, we've had an announcement from the Tassie local government minister that he's going to talk to the sector about that. Did you pick up on that story? Well, Chris, I've got to, got to confess that that might have been the episode of Local Government Roundup that I missed in, in regard to the PESRAC report. But this morning, I did note that the ABC Sabra Lane, who's based in Hobart, was all over the fact that the minister was going to be making an announcement. And it seemed that the announcement was that the minister had been unable to garner sufficient support uh, for amalgamations from the parliamentary colleagues across the aisle, and that perhaps there was consultation now going on with the sector to see if there would be anything self-initiated, I suppose. Uh, that's that's a good summary. So what is effectively said in an official statement is that they've been unable to get that cross-party support for a process. Therefore, they're now going to engage directly, and I'm quoting, with the local government sector, local communities, and users of local government services, so pretty much everyone, uh, to develop a program of agreed reforms to address the issues identified in the PESRAC report. I'm not sure what the number of councils in Tasmania is, but looking at the, the Twitter conversation that followed that announcement, plenty of people that think there's too many. I've got a number of 29 swishing around in my brain, Chris. So Doesn't sound uh, like a lot, though, does it? Uh, in, a, in a state the size of Tasmania, it does sound like a lot, compared yeah. with where we've been in Victoria. Yeah, good point. 79 in Victoria, much bigger um, area to cover than uh, than Tassie. So that's one that we'll watch with interest and see what comes next. But it There's sounds like a pretty loose process. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think um, getting agreement to amalgamations does seem fraught with peril. Um, oh. So, yeah, watch this space. Now, while we're in Tasmania, I know uh, you're really keen to look at this story. We've got a case in, I think, in the northern part of the state where a council general manager and mayor are suing a, a community member who's been active on Facebook for defamation. 
Yes, Chris, um, and thanks to Tony Rownich for bringing that to my attention. The Northern Midlands Council General Manager is suing a ratepayer for damages, claiming that uh, the manager had been brought into ridicule due to comments made uh, by the defendant. This has happened in a Facebook sort of council uh, watch environment, as I understand it. Uh, into Alia, I think, Chris. So yes, part of it is uh, is the Council Watch Facebook page, and a lot of our um, viewers and listeners would be familiar with that kind of arrangement. But mm. also, apparently, also a series of letters uh, sent to an, a number of council personnel, a small number of personnel, according to the defendant, and also to the Premier, um, right. which might have got it a bit more attention. And the Mayor's part of this action as well. I think there's a, yeah, there's another action that uh, hasn't hit the court yet involving the mayor with similar matters, Chris. So um, this person is defending themselves from what I um, have read, Steve, and I think their, their um, what do we put it, their defence is runs an interesting line. It does, and I think we can just um, stay with the wording used on the, uh, on the ABC website, which has reported this, Chris, that uh, yes, uh, Mr McCullough is representing himself and claimed the emails are unlikely to cause harm as they are only sent to a small number of relevant people. Uh, the imputations were trivial in that they were made on a Facebook post on a page operated by an individual with few followers who would already be predisposed to be critical of the plaintiff, so therefore the reputation couldn't be damaged, it says, Chris. That's a very interesting line. And, of course, I meant representing himself when I said uh, defending himself. Um, generally, the number of uh, people that might have seen the communication, is that something the court would take into account as to whether someone's been defamed, do you think? And we're not lawyers. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that. You jumped in ahead of me, Chris. I'm sorry about that. Um, no, we're not. Look, I got to say, I'm not sure. Uh, I think defamation is uh, reputationally uncertain in the sense that, you know, us lay people will, will never really know. The bigger one for me, I think, Chris, on this is that there are all sorts of people who will make allegations of misconduct against public officials, um, be that councillors or council officers. And I've always taken the view if someone's got an allegation, they should make it. But can they just make it to the integrity agencies and let the matter be dealt with properly? That um, I kind of, um, I guess I don't think too highly of uh, sledging people's reputations uh, without, uh, you know, a right of reply, if you like. Now, this is not dissimilar to some of the things that people have been talking about from election campaigns with the way social media is being used. So this might be being watched as a bit of a test case into, um, you know, what sort of uh, action can be taken against people who use social media in such a way. I think you're right, Chris. It's a broader topic and um, and we're aware that the state government's recently reviewed social media and its role in terms of the election process and and that very topic certainly come up. So I think we can readily be expecting um, sort of legislative um, impacts and legislative change um, in, in coming years. Thank you, as you said, to Tony Rannick for alerting us to that story. Tony from Hunt & Hunt Lawyers, who are the sponsors of the VLGA Connect Governance Update, which I forgot to mention at the outset. Now, before we uh, look at some Victorian news, let's jump across into New South Wales, where there's another story that has caught your eye this week, and it's related to an individual's successful case in uh, taking action against a developer. 
Yeah, it was an interesting one, Chris. And um, I guess for a lot of people, the links to local government will be um, a bit tenuous. But effectively, um, you had a situation where there was a piece of land owned by a relative that abutted a um, development for, I think, sort of senior citizens' accommodation. Uh, the developer of that accommodation had basically said that they'd fenced off the area and um, and put up signs prohibiting entrance and had therefore had sort of effective control and maintenance of the land over that period of time and was seeking to lodge an adverse possession claim. So, Steve, this lady's argument has ultimately won the day in the cause. What sort of lessons or takeaways do you think we can get from that? Yeah, let's talk about the court decision first, Chris, and then we'll come back to what are the implications for local government. And some of them might even be um, uh, misconduct and corruption type of issues uh, in some ways too, or misuse of position kind of issues. The court held for the plaintiff that there was no adverse possession, um, basically because the plaintiff was able to satisfy the court that um, the land had, hadn't had been uh, fenced off. And in fact, the number of the people from the local community in Campbelltown fronted up in court and said that they'd been walking their dogs on the area and um, or, or using the area as a throughway. So it was effectively, a you know, it was a road. No one had, um, extensive or exclusive uh, occupancy of that. So uh, that failure to prove, you know, prove exclusive occupancy was fatal to the, um, to the adverse possession claim. Now, how does this affect local government though, Chris? Yeah, yeah good question, <laughs> Steve. How does it? Now, I'm not, again, we're not lawyers and I'm, not, I'm certainly not an adverse possession uh, expert. The one, the area of this that uh, I guess I was exposed to much earlier in my career was um, uh, right-of-ways at the rear of people's properties where um, obviously historically had been established in subdivisions for use by the night cart. But uh, as you know, our cities and towns became sewered, the right-of-ways, unless a, a resident was using it for rear access to their properties, a lot of those became disused and particularly in our inner suburbs, for example, people um, rather than that responsibility of the local community jointly and collectively maintaining the right of way, often people would fence them in. And what you'd find was that people who'd fenced in a right of way over 10, 20, 30 years would then come to the council uh, or even not go to the council and seek to make an adverse possession claim. Mm. A lot of people would find it was much simpler if they could convince the council just to sell them the property rather than to make the claim. So in a sense, councils do from time to time find themselves caught up in these claims for basically transfer of title based on um, an exclusive occupancy. And it's always useful to have someone in your organisation who's across um, the issues. But there's sort of a broader question too, Chris, that um, sometimes councils might get caught up, for example, um, in disputes involving an estate where, for example, the estate might not be paying um, the rates and someone might, in an apparent gesture of goodwill, take on the responsibility of paying the rates over a particular portion of land. Now, it might transpire down the track that the payment of rates might be the sort of evidence that a person needs to um, uh, to make a claim for adverse possession of a particular piece of property. Um, so I guess um, the takeaway from me was that 
um, you know, the title is ultimately the source of truth in terms of uh, the ownership of a property. And um, in fact, we've recently got uh, new regulations announced in regard to uh, land information for councils. And it's really important for councils to follow those processes and to exercise, I guess, a bit of due diligence over the steps that councils take in relation to land because there can be consequences down the track. That's a really good summary. And uh, for those who want to see the story we're talking about, we'll put uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. It really is a bit of a David and Goliath story, that one, isn't it? It is. I, 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 and you and I were both struck by the fact, uh, Chris, that the lady described, said the only support she had was from her beautiful solicitor. It's <laughs> not a phrase we hear often with due respect to our friends at Hunt and Hunt. No, she felt very alone other than that, uh, going up against this big uh, corporation. Uh, as she did ultimately successfully. All right, let's bring it back into Victoria. Uh, the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission has put out its latest newsletter. You found a few nuggets in there of interest. Oh, did I ever, Chris? That's a terrific document. Um, where do we start? There's a nice message from the Commissioner. There's a lovely, um, oh, lovely, there's a piece um, that, written by Professor Adam Graycar and Dr Alan Yates. A piece of research was done recently around uh, perceptions of corruption in New South Wales local government and the professor and the good doctor have written a, uh, a follow-up I guess to look to the um, to the implications for local government in Victoria and um, I guess it, the the really um, telling part for me was uh, not so much the high order high profile corrupt conduct kind of issues but perhaps the distinction between what um, what councillors and officers might be, or executives might be thinking are effective measures compared with the perceptions of whether, you know, corrupt conduct might still occur. And there's a bit of a gap. So just on that topic, Steve, uh, dropping on Monday morning is a new edition of VLGA Connect, where Catherine Arndt and I speak with David Wolfe, Deputy Commissioner at IBAC, about that Victorian survey of local government employees and their perceptions of corruption and integrity in those council organisations. It's a very interesting conversation and I do recommend it to anyone working in the sector. Um, look out for that on Monday. Oh, absolutely, Chris, and I will be. Um, the next thing that struck me was, I guess, a recurring theme that there's a podcast, which I haven't got to listen yet to yet, but I will over the weekend, where the um, Executive Director of Prevention and Communication, Christine Howlett, talks to the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commissioner and good friend to the VLGA, Roe Allen, um, about corruption, integrity and human rights. And it's interesting that that follows not far off the work done by the Essential Services Commission on its Getting to Fair strategy. And in fact, IBAC is doing a separate piece of work on the Focus Community strategy, which recognises that vulnerable people uh, might be more, I guess, um, exposed uh, to um, corruption and misconduct by public officials. So, again, a, re a recurring theme around um, access and equity in terms of um, access to and the impact of misuse of government services. I must add that one to my podcast listening uh, list as well. Thanks for the heads up on that, Steve. And Steve, uh, talking about Roe, who used to be the LGBTIQ plus commissioner before moving on to her current role, we now have had, as of this week, the announcement of Todd Fernando as the new commissioner for LGBTIQ plus communities, which is great to hear. Just only in the last day or two, Chris. So um, congratulations to Todd. Important role. 
It certainly is. So the IBAC Insights newsletter, if you don't get it in your inbox, I think you can find it on their website, correct? You can indeed, um, Chris. And actually, I have two more things I wanted to um, talk about on that. This one is there's a reference guide for managing internal in, uh, investigations, which um, I think is a really important topic because done badly um, can be a bit mm. catastrophic. Mm. So the fact that there's a resource there around managing internal investigations is a good thing. And the other bit of news, and I don't know quite how I missed this, Chris, talking about matters of corruption and so on, is that, um, and again, nice that it's not a local government issue, but the former Department of Education and Training Director Nino Napoli and his cousin Carlos Squalicciotti um, back in July were um, sentenced to imprisonment. I think uh, Mr Napoli got three years um, in regard to some fraudulent conduct uh, relating to the awarding of contracts to relatives. Um, and I know that was a matter that uh, generated a whole lot of interest through um, people interested in good governance in the public sector. Another good pickup, Stephen. I think I can understand why you might have missed that because if I'm not mistaken, back uh, around mid-July, I think we had a bit of freedom. I don't think we were locked down. You were probably out and about in the world doing things and didn't necessarily read everything that came oh, across. Oh, Chris, those, oh, that is just so far away. <laughs> it's ancient history. I, I guess the thing for me about all of that is, of course, that um, uh, those high-order corruption things get a whole lot of um, airtime but in fact, it's the small stuff around the culture of organisations and the patterns that occur in organisations that provide it an environment where that can happen uh, is what we are able to action. Okay, uh, let's note uh, another CEO appointment, if we may. So we've got 21 on the list now, Steve, in terms of Victorian councils that have been impacted by CEO level decisions this <laughs> term of council. Yes, uh, yes, shout out to the Loddon Shire. Uh, we're congratulating Lincoln Fitzgerald who's been announced this week as their new CEO. And Lincoln comes from the city of Greater Bendigo. So uh, congratulations to him and uh, and good luck in the role at Loddon. And that's a great appointment for Lincoln, Steve. He's currently the manager of Active and Healthy Lifestyles at the city of Greater Bendigo. So a good get for his career. Absolutely. And Chris, for anyone, it is a reminder that the Loddon Shire that... Um, when we do finally get out of lockdown and people are thinking, what should we do? Heading on up the highway to maybe go and look at silos or whatever people do, the little township of Inglewood still has the original heritage verandas through the narrow highway and is absolutely gorgeous. So worth a look, I'd say. You're a font of knowledge. You must spend a bit of time up country, do you? Well, I can tell you, Chris, that my mum was born in uh, in the boundaries of the Loddon Shire. So, well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. So congratulations to uh, Lincoln. There's still a couple of CEO appointments outstanding. I don't think we're far off learning what's happening at Maribyrnong. Uh, Brimbank will be somewhat behind that. And, of course, Melton. So it's all happening in the West at the moment. Now, Steve, uh, today, uh, as we record this, we had our live panel on electing the mayor with a, with a terrifically engaged audience. Um, I reckon we've got another winner there with uh, with that, that panel. It was a ripper, Chris. About 50 uh, uh, attendees from all across the state. We can actually say that. Uh, great panel. Um, Mayor, um, Councillor Kim O'Keefe from Greater Shepparton, um, Tony Rownich from Hunt and Hunt, of course, and our good friend Ian McCormick uh, from Alberta, Canada, um, on a panel. And I did think, with due deference to Kim and Tony, the highlight was uh, for me was Ian's comment that uh, people considering um, 
the role of men need to think more about the marriage rather than just the wedding, like just getting the role. So uh, nice reminder. He had some great takeaways, and I've, I'm, I'm going to hunt down the book now, Who's Driving the Greater and Other Governance Questions, which I think is a terrific title. And it's a terrific book, Chris, I can tell you uh, from experience, yes. Excellent. Now, Fast Track, part two, coming up very soon now. Yeah, registrations are rolling in. It's online. Um, speaking of great panels, we have got three terrific panels. I've, I won't go through the detail, Chris, but... Um, in the last week, we've been uh, briefing the panels and talking with the production team about how the day is going to run. Uh, remembering, of course, we'll also have the minister back from his uh, his convalescence and he'll be taking Q&A as well to start the day. So it'll be a terrific day and it's not too late for councillors to register. Uh, and thanks for the reminder because I did note uh, the minister, Sean Lean, did tweet this week that his uh, treatment has finished and he's expected to be back on deck next week, I think, which is terrific news. It'll be great to have him back. Great news. Thank you, Steve. That wraps us up for another governance update. Enjoy the long weekend and the grand final day holiday, and we'll see you again next week. And you too, Chris, even though it's a Hawthorne-free zone. That's the governance update from VLGA Connect with thanks to our sponsors, Hunt and Hunt Lawyers. We'll see you again soon on VLGA Connect. Mm -hmm.